You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, a longtime MMA journalist, novelist, and podcaster. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how's your bowel this week? You know what? As far as I can tell, it's not even a little bit collapsed. Okay. One thing that we have learned, if anything, during the past few days in the world of mixed martial arts is that your bowel can crap out on you at any time. No pun intended. I mean, that was a little pun intended. I mean, try to try to think of a euphemism for your bowel going out on you. Your bowel crapped out. They all sound nasty. I mean, the entire experience sounds nasty. I... The, the thing that I was thinking about in the shower today was all the terrible human things that could happen that I was not aware of that MMA has shown me. Yeah. Just over the course of following this crazy sport, you learn what a damn slow motion train wreck the human body is and all the awful things that can befall it, especially when you're habitually gaining and losing a bunch of weight. Sometimes it feels like... The place that we end up from one Monday to the next is fairly far afield from the place that we thought we were headed Yeah, just a week ago. We didn't think we were headed for collapsed battle territory. Robert Whitaker didn't think he was headed for the emergency room, I bet, at least not till after the fight. And yet, there we are, with Matt Damon looking on. Handing out his expert bowel advice. Matt Damon being like, oh, that's one of the worst bowels I've ever seen. That bowel's going to take four to six weeks at the minimum to, to repair itself. Minimum. Minimum. Remember, if you want to support the Co-Main Event Podcast, you can go get Cowboy Astronaut cigarette t-shirts and Dundasso t-shirts over at CottonBureau.com all the time, whenever you want them. Just go there to CottonBureau.com and pick up some CME merchandise today. We got music this week again from our longtime friend and listener, Roz Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on this episode of the show, you can check out more at soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M Ross. Now, Ben, Mm -hmm. we found out in the interim from last Monday to this Monday, that's the abbreviation for Stockholm. Ah. Bunch of people, bunch of our Nordic friends hit us up to let us know that uh, that's what that is. Stockholm Ross. Okay. I would not have known that. Me either. Seems like there ought to be a K in there somewhere, don't you think? You'd think. But I don't know, maybe that's just our weirdo, American-centric way of looking at it. Yeah, I would not have guessed that, but that's where we're at. Well, I guess we kind of outed ourselves as not exactly global world travelers, huh? Man, we do that every fucking week. Yeah, we do. Well, every time we have to pronounce a name, we do that. People find great joy in that. You know what? And life is too short, man. Whatever brings them joy. Your, your bowel could collapse on you tomorrow, so enjoy it while you can. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. And round number one, one thing about MMA is that no matter how long you follow this sport, it seems like each time out, you're liable to see some shit you've never seen before. Last weekend, that thing was Robert Whitaker's collapsed bowel. And in round number two, Anderson Silva looked just barely competent against Israel Adesanya. Go crazy, everybody. Go crazy. And in round number three, this is your reminder to start getting pre-nervous about Cain Velasquez versus Francis Ngannou. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, 
like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Billy Slater, who I assume is a footballer. Or... Rugby player? Character on Baywatch? That also could be true. Yeah. That feels true. Get yourself in trouble. Out past the uh, Do Not Swim buoy, Billy Slater's going to dive in the water and come get you. Yeah. Drag you out. Probably spend the night in a uh, camper van after that. He will or you will? Or you will together? He will. He will. With some, uh, some other lifeguards, let's just say. Some nubile young lifeguard. Billy Slater writes, so Chael Sonnen is back appearing on TV as a fucking UFC analyst. The shit is this bullshit. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> the shit is this bullshit. Yeah, I mean, okay, no, I like it. Keep going. How quickly the MMA gods assume we forget, or at least one of the major promotions that love to ignore the MMA gods atop Mount Zion's and tempt their ire assumes we forget. Care to discuss this straight up bullshit gentleman? Shit. That's what it says. Wow. That's a... It's a well-put-together email, really. Or at least, it's a well-put-together email when you know that your audience is us. That's true. Here's the thing about Chael Sonnen. He was never really gone. No, he wasn't. He's been around. It's just that uh, I don't know how many people were watching MMA coverage on ESPN. Well, there wasn't that much of it. But whenever they did do some stuff, he was there. Yeah, he's been around. He's been working over at Bellator, in case you guys didn't know that. It was a little bit jarring, though, was it not, to... uh, to suddenly see Chael like back in the UFC mix since uh you know he is a fighter over with Bellator now he's been doing some broadcast work with Bellator on the side so to hear during the UFC broadcast John Anik say stuff like they were going to kick it over to Chael Sonnen uh was a little bit weird a little bit of a flashback for me here's a thesis that I'm not sure I totally believe but I'm just going to throw it out there and you tell me whether you think it holds water no one in MMA has done more bad stuff, broken more rules, whether just like actual MMA rules or actual legal code rules. No one has committed more transgressions than Chael Sonnen and suffered fewer actual consequences. That seems... What about John Jones? I mean, John Jones okay, has suffered okay. some consequences. True. Well, and I mean, Chael Sonnen has technically... I mean, he suffered a pretty long suspension there, but... When you look at where he's ended up, it's like none of it really mattered. Yeah. He's, he's got a, a job that fits him well with Bellator, but then also manages to talk about the UFC on ESPN. Like, who else manages to do that, to kind of cross those two worlds? Usually you got to pick one. Also, you know, one of the most notorious dopers in the history of the sport, but is still out there fighting, still taken seriously as a TV personality, even though he lost his last TV personality job for going on the air with the people who employed him and just straight up lying his ass off about the stuff he was doing. You know what I was thinking about uh, during that most recent John Jones, Nevada state athletic commission appearance where, uh, you know, they had all the expert witnesses come in and talk about picograms and whatnot and various uh, testing processes that may or may not be new and, and, you know, may or may not be more sensitive than they have been in the past. Do you remember when Chael Sonnen and his lawyer went in front of a state athletic commission, might have been California, and tried to cite the Americans with Disabilities Act and say that Chael had been like the victim of hypogonadism. Hypogonadism, went through Didn't go through puberty until he was in his 20s or something like that, and so that he needed uh, testosterone replacement therapy, I think just to survive was one of the things that they said. Just, Just to live. 
just to live a life. That's a thing that actually happened. Well, and then there's a video of that somewhere. The Fox Sports one thing he went on there and claimed that this stuff he was doing was all just like fertility treatments. Right. Because he wanted to have a baby. Right. So he's. he's And then they edited his retirement announcement. Right. Isn't that what they did on Fox Sports one? Like he gave a retirement announcement live kind of on UFC tonight or whatever it was. And then by the time it showed up on the Internet, they had edited it. It looked like he got to go back and do a second take. Okay, I vaguely remember that. I just remember like trying to put together a newser or something for whatever job I was working at the time and like having transcribed some quotes from the live version. Then I was like, oh, I'll go find the video and embed that in my story. And when I watched the embedded version of the video, I was like, this is different. This is not the same version that... That I watched earlier. There's some Watergate tape bullshit going on here. I don't know. Is it just because Chael Sonnen is so charming that people just like him and they just want it to be like, oh, Chael, you're incorrigible. Come on, get over here and have two jobs. I mean, he is charming and everybody who knows him personally loves the guy. Yeah, everybody no, says Chael him, is a great charming. guy. Yeah. Uh, but does it seem weird as a choice for the worldwide leader? Because like the, the, you know, prior to this UFC deal and a great influx of UFC you know, former fighter, current fighter commentators, the two guys that ESPN had were Chael and Gilbert Melendez. And I remember like looking at that combo and being like, that's like a, an interesting choice. If you can have anybody you want, the guy you want is Chael Sonnen. Maybe they're thinking the people who know enough about Chael Sonnen's background to feel like it's weird. Don't matter. Cause they're going to watch anyway. And if they know that much, they know enough about him that they feel like it's part of the character. Right. Chael Sonnen. I wonder if part of it is sort of a Stephen A. Smith kind of thing where they're like, well, everybody's going to watch this guy and at least half the people are going to hate him so much that like they talk about him constantly and embed all of his videos into their tweets. And, well, whatnot. and for the role that he is in there, he's good at it. Yeah. He's good in front of the camera. He's comfortable. And he has both like, he can do interesting, real analysis, and he can just say stuff. Just kind of pop off and say stuff. He can, you know, keep the red light on the camera on him. And that, I think, is maybe something they're really looking for. Speaking of which, another appearance from Chael Sonnen coming up later in the show on my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Oh, good. Next question this week comes to us from Dr. Seuss. All right. Nice to hear from the good doctor. Noted deceased children's author. Yeah. Dr. Seuss. Crazy idea. Fighters weigh in once a year and fight at that weight class the whole year. Thoughts? Question mark. Now, this this would be the system we have now, just without the, like, once a year weigh-in. Like, if you weigh a guy in once a year, he's just going to cut a bunch of weight. Yes. He's just going to cut down to 155. He'll do his annual weigh-in, and then he'll cut down to 155 every time he needs to fight for the rest of the year. Yeah, that, I mean, you're just asking for everybody to show up as skeletons one day. I don't know if it's all going to be the same day because that would be kind of awesome if it was just like one, like the UFC, like fighter summit day. Everybody just has to show up looking just haggard and get their way in and, and then you go gain 45 pounds at the buffet. Now, I, I mean, I like the idea kind of of just like instead of just doing the thing where we make you get to your most, most unhealthiest point. 24 hours before the contest, which right. is just insane. Every time I think about it, it's just insane the way we do this. Uh, I like the idea more of how about when they go drug test you, they weigh you. Yeah, that's what and I not think just like once, but like, you know, so we get some numbers to work with and then 
when you have you know three or four weigh-ins under the belt there, then you can kind of look at it and decide where everybody should be. The UFC is already talking about how it has basically a biological passport for all of its athletes. They're using that terminology you know, when they go in front of the Nevada State Athletic Commission. They're tracking all of this stuff, including internal hormone levels and stuff like that. Adding on a weigh-in to that seems like the least intrusive thing they could possibly do. Like, yeah. the USADA guy brings a scale when he comes over just to get, like, a baseline weight on everybody all the time so that you're not – you don't necessarily know when it, when it's coming so that you, you can't go cut a bunch of extra weight to try to make it look like you're a featherweight when you're actually a welterweight. Uh, would we'll that lead to people just basically being, like, cyclists and uh, being as at the lowest possible weight that they could possibly get to 365 days a year? Maybe. Would that be worse? Maybe. But, like, I think it's an interesting idea, and if we – conclude that Robert Whitaker's collapsed bowel, for example, may have had something to do with an intense weight cut, cutting all this weight, dropping all this body weight right before a physical contest and things like that just sort of keep happening. We got to do something. Yeah. I don't think that that would be the outcome though, that everybody would walk around at an an incredibly low, possibly unhealthy weight. Right. I'm just trying to like spitball the worst case scenario. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think more of the worst case scenario is that somebody would complain like, Hey, I keep getting an unlucky draw with when they show up. Basically like they keep showing up right before I started the diet day after Thanksgiving. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody wants to get the surprise way in day after. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I took, I took the weekend. I had a cheat day on Friday and it stretched till Sunday. Fine. But I'm sitting there amid Taco Bell wrappers and the USADA people show up and you're like, oh, damn it. This is going to screw up my weigh-in numbers. I think that that's more likely. Because I think that if you told a lot of these people who are making some of the more extreme weight cuts that this would have to be your life now, like this all the time, I think that that's when they would be like, all right, what's going on at the next weight class above? Now I'll really consider it. Well, and that might be a good thing, right? Yes. Well, I mean, I think that's what I'm saying is I think that that would be a more likely response from most of them rather than just, all right, looks like I'm starving all the time rather than just, you know, a few weeks a year. Next question this week comes to us from Alex Gilead, who writes, well, oh, it's- yeah, Alex Gilead, noted, uh, English professional football player. Okay. Now, great. see, this one, I, I looked this one up because the name jumped out at me. Kind of a giveaway. I think somebody gave us this one specifically to make us say the names of these weird English cities. Okay. Um, he, according to Wikipedia, plays as a forward or a winger for League One club Shrewsbury Town, which well, sounds that, totally say, fucking say fake. That, say that again. Shrewsbury Town. Shrewsbury? Yeah. His place of birth? Shotley Bridge. Oh, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Shotley Bridge. Come on, man. What the fuck is, what is even going on over there? Alex Gilead, either a professional soccer player or like a knight who sat at the round table <laughs> yes. in King Arthur's court. Sir Alex Gilead. He writes, well, it's finally happening. It only took two, go- it only took a goddamn Grand Prix tournament for Bellator to finally book their two most valuable Brits to fight each other. Only problem? MVP versus Paul Daly goes down in Uncasville, Connecticut, because I guess everywhere in the UK was impossible. What's that? Bellator just held a damn card in Newcastle this Saturday. Well, shit. Anyway, I digress. What's your hype level for this fight? And if he wins, will it finally be time to anoint MVP as something more than a prospect? Discourse, uh, if you wish. Okay, this is a good point, because 
I know a lot of people noted that it took forever for us to make this fight with two British fighters with exciting fighting styles who seem to genuinely dislike each other. And so it seemed like a no-brainer that we're going to get these guys in the cage. And it did take the welterweight Grand Prix in order for Bellator to finally be able to make it happen. And then, yeah, right? A week after you have an event in England... Then you turn around and go to Uncasville, Connecticut with this fight. Well, you got to take every big attraction to Uncasville. Right. The Mohegan Casino. I mean, the, the Mohegan Sun, that's where... That's the granddaddy of them all. Put your name in lights. That's where all the big action goes down. Everybody's yes. out in, the, in front taking a picture of their name on the marquee. Yeah, that's Remember right. Remember that time I was on the marquee in Uncasville? You'll be telling your grandkids? Yeah. Then I went over to Mystic, had a, had a nice seafood dinner. People have been crying out for MVP. To get a legitimate opponent for a while now. Yeah. Now we got Paul Daly. I guess we should answer Sir Alex Gilead's question here. What's our level of hype for this fight? Because it this one goes down this weekend. That's right. Well, Bellator has two events this weekend. Like they do. <laughs> Friday and Saturday. And honestly, I'm pretty hyped for this one. Because I, I do think if you go out there and you beat Paul Daly, and granted, Paul Daly, I don't want to call him a one-trick pony, but I can't say there's two tricks in there. Yeah, I mean, my like one and a half trick pony, perhaps. It's a good trick, though. Yeah. It's taken him pretty far. And if you go out there and you beat him, especially if you beat him standing, yeah, that is something. It's definitely a step up from what we've seen MVP do for most of his time in this sport so far. Yeah, so what's, the, what's at stake here for MVP? You don't want to lose to Paul Daly, right? This is sort of like the, the obstacle, the test, the litmus test that everybody's been waiting for, for Michael Page. Like, let's see if this guy can cut it out there against another uh, named man, a capital G guy in the Bellator. Uh, what are they fighting at? Welterweight or middleweight? It's welterweight Grand Prix, man. Welterweight Grand Prix. Good point. I guess they're probably doing it at 170. Yeah. Let's see if, if he can cut it against a guy we've heard of at welterweight. It would seem to me like stakes is pretty high for Michael Page here. Yeah. Well, and also this being such a long simmering feud between them you don't want to lose to the guy after all that and it's been michael page saying like paul daly get in the damn cage and it seems like daly has at times been the guy holding it up and making it difficult for it to happen and i mean you look at paul daly's career at this point he's got like damn near 60 pro mma fights he had that last one against john fitch where he did the thing that he is known to do at times where he's getting out wrestled because that is clearly the hole in his game and always has been and he's just kind of laying there (laughs) booing booing (laughs) his own fight while he was on tv looking into the camera talking about how many people were going to hate watching this stupid fight and now you know a little less than a year later you get this big grudge match in the opening round of the grand prix if he wants to get back in there and be somebody in Bellator, this is the fight that he's got to win. And if he does win, if he goes out there and lands that big left-hand knockout on MVP, shuts up his rival, he's kind of back in the mix there. I, mean, I think there's a bunch of people in this welterweight Grand Prix that would see him as easy pickings just because of the, they have the ground game that he lacks. But this is the fight that you got to win in order to kind of stay relevant and stay a capital G guy if you're Paul Daly. Pretty good for Bellator, I think, to roll straight out of the heavyweight Grand Prix into the welterweight Grand Prix. The the heavyweight Grand Prix, for all intents and purposes, went off as a big success for Bellator. I don't necessarily know that you're going to get quite the same bounce out of the welterweight Grand Prix, but you got some some big names in here, man. You get, this yeah. is a kind of a star-studded bracket. So, I mean, athletically, don't you think it's more 
has more relevant fighters than the heavyweight Grand Prix did. I mean, well, know, that's no trick. People, people get more excited about the heavyweight, and it has a lot of like formerly famous names. But this one has more people who actually matter now. Oh, for sure. Just in terms of the competition that you're going to see in the cage, the welterweight Grand Prix is leaps and bounds ahead of the heavyweight Grand Prix. But really, all you've got to say to people is heavyweight Grand Prix, and they're going to come check it out. True. So, well, I don't know. One, I think stylistically, I think that this makes for uh, an interesting fight to try to decide how it's going to go. Because you got Paul Daly, who isn't super flashy, kind of a meat and potato striker, but he's really good at it and can hurt you at any point yeah. when you're standing up with a guy. Yeah. And then you got MVP who's out there known for a little razzle dazzle snake style, whatever he's doing out there dancing like a Python. What if he's going to be able to do that against Paul Daly? That's the question here, right? Is he going to be able to go out there and like dragon ball Z dance all over the cage against a guy as serious as Paul Daly? Would he risk it? Is the thing, or like, does he even see it as, is that just such a, well, that's a different question. Like if Paul Daly goes out there, or if MVP goes out there and he doesn't look like MVP, if he just goes out there like a straight-up kickboxer, aren't we going to kind of be like, okay, well, now we see that when you're in there against somebody who's got some skills, you're not shooting a Hadouken or whatever it is across <laughs> the cage anymore. You know, I was surprised. I went and looked at the odds for this one. Who do you think is the favorite? I mean, I don't know. Paul Daly? Is, that, is he the favorite? MVP is like a 3-1 to one favorite. Wow. And the I mean... I didn't see a whole lot of places offering lines, but the only one I saw, MVP, was like a 3-1 to one favorite. I mean, I guess he's good. He appears good. Every time we see him, the guy looks good. He just ain't fought nobody. You call him David Rickles nobody? The caveman? Evangelista Santos. Cracked his damn skull, Chad. He did do that. He did crush up the front of a man's skull. <laughs> yes, Gotta give him his proper that. was that. terrible. Last question as we come to us from Adam Lomas. Okay. Might be a real person. I don't Is know. Is that, uh, was he the renegade? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. That's Lorenzo Lamas. That's, that's, that's yeah, that's, yeah that sounds right. Okay. So Smiling Sam became Salty Sam after his loss this weekend down under, calling Mark Goddard out on his perceived early stoppage. Personally, I think lying in turtle eating knuckle sandwiches isn't intelligently defending yourself, regardless of what you are doing with your opposables. <laughs> okay, I like this question. Mark is a reliable ref who is one of the few to break down his calls post-fight to fans, but do you think Sam has a right to call this out live on pay-per-view and have Dom and John back this shit up? Discourse, please. Kind of a lot to unpack here in the Sam Alvey loss to Jimmy Crute, who has maybe the most Australian name of any fighter. I Jimmy really, Crute. I really love the, uh, have you heard about Jimmy fucking Crute thing that he does, though. Yeah. Come I on, mean, that's all, that's all. You're referring to yourself in the third person. Also, like it's kind, it's got like a mantra feel to it. It's something you can shout into a microphone. I'm into that. Yeah, no, I like it. I like everything he's doing. What about Sam Alvey though, Ben? He had complained already that Mark Goddard had stopped an earlier fight of his uh, a little bit prematurely, in his opinion. This is just a weird stoppage. I mean, it's not a weird stoppage. It's a weird turn of events to borrow a phrase from Al Swearingen uh, from the first two episodes of Deadwood. It's a weird turn of events. Turn of events? I believe that was Seth Bullock who, well, they both who, said who observed that was a turn of events. They yeah. both repeated it to each other. This is just a weird exchange at the end of this fight. Well, I don't blame Mark Goddard too much for this. Like, I'm not going to say it was a good stoppage, but I can see what he's thinking there. Because right. Sam Alvey gets crushed across the jaw and goes down hard. And Jimmy fucking Crute 
walks away a little prematurely from that one. Tried to do the walk-off. Right. KO didn't, and didn't was, quite get there. Yeah, it's more like a ground rule double. That's right. And Marcador has to try to encourage him to keep fighting. Things get a little weird there. And you can tell, like, Sam Alvin gets back up and is stumbling. You can tell he's not totally all there. And then they go to the ground and he gets swept over kind of easily. So you're already, if you're the ref thinking about, is this guy safe to continue in this fight? You might be looking at those few things and start to get a certain kind of image of where he is. Yeah. And then when he turtles up and he's laying there and he's getting hit, I guess the only thing you can really fault him for is that he was not in a great position to see where those punches were landing. And yeah. on the replay, you can see they're hitting his arm. They're missing. Not a whole lot of them are really connecting. Yeah. Now the idea that like, Hey, I can lay here turtled up. And as long as I stick my hand out and do the thumbs up, the, the feeble, referee won't stop. A feeble thumbs up. <laughs> what would you consider a really strong thumbs up? Well, th- I mean, this whole stoppage, in my opinion, doesn't look bad till you see it in slow motion. Right. Because. Which, is, which doesn't that tell you that you ought to give the ref some slack because yeah. he didn't have that advantage? Absolutely. Like, I, I, I say and say and say, we expect the world out of these referees. They have an impossible job. Mark Goddard cannot see the fight in slow motion as it's happening in front of him. He can't even see the television angles that we are seeing it from at home. He's a human man out there in the cage trying to do his best. And like, I got to be honest, when I watched this thing in real time, three things were different than in the replay. The first thing is that in the replay, when Alvy first gets dropped and he kind of goes down on his hands and knees and he's going to stand up, in real time, it kind of looks like he slips. Like he tries to get up and he goes back down. And it makes him look like he really got rocked. You see it in the replay and he's he's actually kind of ducking. He goes to stand back up and he sees Jimmy fucking Crute coming in ready to lay the wood. And he kind of ducks back down. Which when you see on the replay, it's like, oh, okay. He still does have his wits about him. In real time, I was like, oh, he's fucked up. And then uh, the second thing that happens, you can't really see the thumbs up. I didn't even see it well, in real time. You can see it in the replay, but like he does this like low altitude thumbs up across the cage, across like the, not the cage, but like the surface of the mat. Right. And he's reaching out in front of him and the ref is not looking at your hands at that point. He's looking at your head to see if you're getting your skull caved in by the other guy. Right. He's not paying attention to what you're doing with your outstretched hand there. And the third thing is that in Real time, it looks like he's getting absolutely blasted with those shots from the top. You see it in uh, slow motion, and and yeah, like very few of those punches are actually landing. Once the stoppage happens, Sam Alvey passes the what the fuck test. He jumps up and immediately screams what the fuck. Uh, it just seems like unfortunate circumstances here to have two Sam Alvey fights stopped under circumstances that are at least worth a review by the same ref. And like yeah. ordinarily, I feel like Mark Goddard is a really good ref. And like, yeah. and I can't fault him for this one either. I just think that specifically for Sam Alvey, that's a tough one. Like if you were Sam Alvey, you would think I just got screwed. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're Jimmy fucking Crute, you feel like, well, I was going to finish him pretty soon anyway. And, you know, yeah, I think that Mark Goddard does a good job and you're not going to get them all perfectly right. You can say this one was not a great stoppage. I wouldn't argue with that. But to be like, it was an absolute egregious stoppage and he robbed Sam Alvey of a chance to compete, I wouldn't go that far either. Man, it's always so awkward, though, after a stoppage like that where then the ref has to hold their hands and raise one guy's hand in the middle of the cage. Sam Alvey can't wait to get out of there. Basically sprints out of the cage as soon as the, the official verdict is rendered. Always very awkward. 
Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As of right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, neither of us were totally bullish about the prospects of Kelvin Gastelum headed into UFC 234. Last Monday on the co-main event podcast, we both struggled to plot a path to victory uh, for Kelvin here, headed into his fight against Robert Whitaker. As things turned out, we clearly could not forecast that Robert Whitaker would make a late night trip to the emergency room, be trundled into emergency surgery be slotted with a four to six week recovery time after his collapsed and twisted bowel, something like that. Collapsed bowel, internal hernia. Yeah, not good. Terrible sounding stuff. Uh, So Kelvin Gastelum ends up not fighting at all on this weekend's UFC 234 card. But it kind of seems like he made the most of it, man. Like coming out of this week, I think he has done everything that he could do to ensure that he is one of the people in the next middleweight title fight whether that be against Robert Whitaker or against Israel Adesanya, I don't know. Where do you want to start with this, man? Do you want to talk about the terrible fate that has befallen Bobby Knuckles, or would you like to talk about the ultimate out-of-the-cage performance by Kelvin Gastelum? Let's start with Robert Knuckles here, just because... Caught a bad one. Yeah, he did. And you know what? I don't know if you saw the video he posted on Instagram from the hospital. I did not. I just saw the uh, the the initial statement that his team put out, which made it sound like... He had undergone one of the worst experiences in the world. Yeah. Well, he put out a video either today or or last night from the hospital. And this guy, I really want to see what it takes to get him in a bad mood. He's in pretty good spirits considering everything that has happened here. And is just like apologizing for not being able to fight in front of his friends and family there in Melbourne. But you're like, man, this guy... kind of can't get him down. I would be bummed. I would be bummed both for my physical state and because that was a big opportunity Yeah, and didn't get to go through with it there. Plus you're not getting that paycheck. Plus you're not getting that paycheck after all that training. And instead you're getting surgery on your bowels. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I kind of wondered though, is this going to end up being a uh, Brock Lesnar diverticulitis situation? Is he going to be the same guy? Because it seems like you wouldn't have to work too hard to imagine a scenario where he rushes back maybe before doctors would advise you to go fight in a cage after having your bowels collapse on you. Right, especially from a guy that we are led to believe was trying to pry himself off the operating table even as they clamped the anesthesia mouthpiece over his nose and mouth, was still trying to to squirm out of there to go fight Kelvin Gasolum. Let me go, Doc. I can still go. It's pretty easy for me to believe that Robert Whitaker would uh, 
set up another fight before he was 100% physically ready. Well, and if you're paying attention and you're in the UFC these days, you know that they're probably not going to wait around for you forever. Just the way the UFC does business suggests that if you can't get back in there and go and defend that title, they're going to work around you. So I could see a whole lot of reasons why a guy in that situation might rush back. And then if he does rush back into the cage and you're Kelvin Gaslam or whoever and you fight that guy next, don't you immediately start by kicking him in the gut just to see? You're damn right you do. Yeah. Of course you do. Uh, You mentioned whether or not this turns into a Brock Lesnar situation for Robert Whitaker. As we mentioned on the uh, morning after reaction piece that we recorded about UFC 234 over on Patreon, uh, he has had a stomach ailment in the past. He had that weird like internal staph infection, which was another thing that sounded like it was one of the worst things that could ever happen to you. Now, I hope at some point someone can tell me the origin of this hernia, because I don't know how a dude gets a hernia between the weigh-in and the fight. That's just a... uh, Maybe, I got it. You're in the hotel room, right? Uh, You're trying to sleep. It's important to get good sleep the night before the fight, but the feng shui is all off. Okay. And you're like, this bed needs to face the south. And uh, you think about calling somebody in to help you, but no, you're a professional goddamn athlete. You can move a bed. So the next thing you know... Hernia. Hernia. I mean... Jokes aside, we are left to assume that this is probably like a training injury or a, a pre-existing thing that Robert Whitaker had that that was somehow uh, made much worse by the his fight preparations, by the weight cut, by whatever it was, and he ends up getting uh, counted out of the fight. I guess we have no reason to believe that like Robert Whitaker's gut is going to be a problem moving forward, but just the fact that he had that staph infection and now he has the hernia. I don't think you can also completely rule out whether or not this becomes, you know, an ongoing issue for him like diverticulitis was for a time for Brock. Yeah. Well, and there's just the question of how do you get back in and feeling like you're 100% and put in a full training camp and go through all this stuff again just to get to the fight. Uh, I I mean, he's young enough that it seems like he can probably bounce back from some stuff like this. You hope that he can because obviously he's talent-wise uh, – a great treasure to have in the sport. You want to see him come back all the way from this, but still, if if I'm fighting that guy next, I'm kicking him in the stomach just to see what happens, just to make sure that he's all 100% there. Because how, how do you not try that? It would be a very MMA thing. If a young, talented, reasonably marketable, 185-pound champion like Robert Whitaker just became like weirdly injury-prone and like had all of these... Uh, off the wall problems with like his intestines. Yeah. That would be a very MMA it thing would. to it have. It'd be happen. pretty on brand for us. Let's talk about Kelvin Gastelum here, Ben. Uh, we weren't particularly high on his prospects heading into this weekend, but like it seemed to me like, you know, love or hate the thing that he did with the, with the replica belt talking about how he's the champ. I think, I feel like he did what he had to do out of the cage to tr- to try to like preserve his own prospects yeah. to make sure that he didn't get leapfrogged by Israel Adesanya. Right. And we talked about this a little bit on the, the audio extra, which patrons of the co-main event podcast heard got, got sent straight to their inbox. But the, the dilemma he's put in there is knowing, all right, they're going to promote this other middleweight bout where the winner was supposed to get a title shot. They're going to promote that to the main event. Now you're not going to get to fight. So through no fault of your own, 
you could end up in a very similar situation that Colby Covington saw, where he was next in line, and then Kamaru Usman has a good fight, and the next thing you know, Kamaru Usman's the guy, and the UFC's telling you to get back in line. It just happened. So, like, it's not like it's really hard for you to picture how something like that might happen to you. you got to do something to keep yourself in the conversation to remind everybody that you got next on Bobby Knuckles. So, it's not a completely bad move. I mean, it is a little bit of, uh, like, you put out the classy statement first, and then you show up and you're like, by the way, I'm the champ now. I'll give him a crack at my title. Those two things are kind of in conflict, but I can see what he was thinking with both things. As somebody pointed out to me on Twitter, to really run the whole, like, I'm a wrestler and this is how we do it kind of thing, uh, he should have gotten in the cage with a microphone and given Robert Whitaker until the count of 10 to show up. <laughs> and then if he could not, then declare him out of it and himself officially the UFC middleweight champion. Uh, I mean, here's a scenario where depending on how long Robert Whitaker is going to be out, it would not be hard at all to imagine an interim title yeah. factoring in here. And if you're Calvin Gassam, you want to be in there. That's right. You want to, If it's going to be you against Israel Adesanya, you want to make damn sure you don't get leapfrogged by anybody else. Right. And so, yeah, even if, like we always talk about with the interim title, like will people still keep falling for that because we've seen how little those can mean at times. But then what are you going to do? If they give you that opportunity, you still want to stay in that conversation. You want to have something, and so you might as well go in there and fight Israel Adesanya if, if it comes to that. To me, though, it's like if he's – if Robert Whitaker is going to be out, let's say, two months before he can do anything, you know, that's that seems like even that might be kind of a speedy timetable. But sure, let's say it's two months before he can get back in the gym, and then, you know, you want another six weeks of, of training to get ready for that fight. Or if we, this happens by, like, midsummer. You feel like that's a reasonable timetable? Everybody can wait that long? Nobody will do anything too crazy between now and then? I mean, it would be pretty janky to have an interim title if, you're, if your champ is only going to be laid up for two months. But we've seen jankier interim titles. We have. At least we got a game plan now for Kelvin Gastelum. We, kinda, we, we couldn't decide on one last week. I was like, you got to go out there and wrestle. You were like, basically try to win with a lucky shot. Uh, now we got one. Kick him in the gut. Kick him in the gut. Kick him in the gut, Calvin. If that doesn't work, ask him to help you move a sofa. <laughs> All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, we talked about Chael Sonnen earlier in the show. And indeed, we even noted nobody likes just saying stuff in this industry quite as much as the gangster Chael P. Sonnen. He loves it. This dude, he's out there. After Robert Whitaker has to pull out of his fight against Kelvin Gaslam, claiming that he checked with Bellator to see if it was okay if he stepped in against Anderson Silva at UFC 234 so that Kelvin Gaslam could fight Israel Adesanya. Are you fucking kidding me? First of all, hashtag just saying stuff. This guy's out there just, just purely just saying stuff. Second of all, I would have watched that. Like, once we found out Robert Whitaker was out of this pay-per-view, I altered my plans, especially since you made it clear that I was not welcome at your house. I was like, I'm not going to drive across town to Ben Folks' house to watch a Robert Whitaker-less UFC 234. If you had told me you were going to get Chael Sonnen going from the bar stool to the cage to fight Anderson Silva in the co-main, oh, I would have been there. 
I would have been there with bells on. Blowing snow be damned. Are you fucking kidding me? The minivan just barreling through drifts of snow <laughs> on my way over there. Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Chad, I'm going to read to you a quote. Uh, this is from Kelvin Gaslam that he apparently said on Ariel Helwani's show today. Okay. An actual quote. Breaking news. came out of Kelvin Gaslam's mouth about uh, Robert Whitaker. I feel like I'm dreaming about this guy every single day for 10 months. I think I'm going gay for him. No, not that there's anything wrong with it. I have to dream about this guy for 10 months, and he does it again and pulls out of the fight. You fucking kidding me? Kelvin. You fucking kidding me? <laughs> Kelvin. Yeah, we're just opening our mouths and seeing what comes out. Fucking kidding me? He said that in public. Yeah. On the Arrowhead Warning Show. When he knew it was being recorded. Kelvin. <laughs> That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back for round number two. It's fair to say that both of our expectations for the Israel Adesanya Anderson Silva bout were low. Basically, you know, we wanted a good time, we wanted a good fight, but mainly what we wanted is not to be sad. Yeah. And on that level, this one really delivered. The, the, I was not sad by the end. The reactions to this fight really have a lot more to do with our fears yes. and our expectations than anything else. It's almost like everyone is like, Oh, thank God. You know what I mean? We, we made it through that one. I'd say people online being like, who would have thought the problem with Israel Adesanya versus Anderson Silva was that we needed two extra rounds? Yeah. And I was like, nope. Give me, <laughs> give me three. Give me 15 minutes, and I'll put this one in my back pocket and take it walking away. Yeah. I mean, never did I feel like Anderson Silva was really on the verge of winning this fight. Yeah. And only a couple times did I feel like he was really on the verge of immediately losing it. But – Acquitted himself well. Yeah. I think you would say, which you're right. The fact that we would say something like that about former champ and all time pound for pound great Anderson Silva just kind of shows you where he's at at this point in his career. But it seemed like we all knew what the UFC was thinking by making this fight. It, it felt like we we're about to watch the young feast on the old, like we have many, many times before in this sport. And so then to go out there and have a fairly competitive fight where Anderson Silva you know, gives some back, proves he can still take some. It was a pleasant surprise, I guess. I also, though, wondered, were the lowered expectations making us treat this as if it were better than it really was from Anderson Silva? I feel like the reactions were a little bit over the top, uh, especially as we get a little bit further away from the fight. It, it was a fight that had that tension between yeah. two guys who can deliver a stoppage and you don't want to see something terrible happen to 43-year-old Anderson Silva, but you know that Israel Adesanya has stoppage power. You know that Anderson Silva has stoppage power. So it does have that sort of like razor's edge tension where you're watching it and you're hoping for the best, but you know that something terrible could happen at any time. And there are a lot of near misses from both guys. And when that doesn't happen, I think, the, you know, people went a little crazy talking about how great this fight was. Like, it was perfectly fine. It was a perfectly fine fight. 43-year-old Anderson Silva went out there and did not look you know, as we feared he might. Turned out he was still Anderson Silva. He was a 43-year-old version of Anderson Silva. He ain't as good as he once was, 
but he can still crack you and he can get enough respect that Israel Adesanya, the style bender, is not just going to go out there and bend styles all over the place. Uh, he's going to have to, you know, mind himself a little bit while he's in there. So I thought all that, that was very positive. But I think that most of it was this like incredible wave of relief that caused people to be like, hey, you know what? That wasn't as bad as we thought. It wasn't as bad as we feared. I think one of the things that was an encouraging sign for him, especially if he's intent on continuing, which it seems like he is, is that you could see a little bit of cage generalship on his part now. Like maybe when some of the physical tools are atrophying and maybe who knows, he's coming to terms with that fact that he's just not quite as fast and not that the reflexes aren't quite as terrifying as they once were, but he is able to kind of control a fight a little better than I think you, maybe we realized beforehand, like the way he's able to kind of control the pace at which it happens He creates situations where you don't want to go running in there after him. So you have to kind of play it at his speed a little bit. And then every once in a while, he can change that speed. He can really come after you. And you saw in the moments where Israel Adesanya looked uncomfortable, it was when Anderson Silva is suddenly pressing down on you and he's he's pushing you against the cage and punching you in the eye. Yeah. And so maybe there's a little bit of like maybe he can squeeze a little more out of his career using just experience and his his ability to control a fight and know how to move and know how to work it inside the cage i don't know the question for me is like what do you want to do after this if you're anderson silva because he doesn't want to go home doesn't want to leave the party he he wants to stay in there and fight and i i don't know you look at the kinds of matchups where you would think all right this will keep him out of any unreasonable danger and yet give you something that is fun enough that people will still show up to watch it but it looks like when you start to go through those potential matchups, he's pretty much done all those fights already. Yeah, the problem, I think, is what UFC matchmakers are going to want to do with Anderson Silva. Because this Israel Adesanya matchup, like we said last week, really smacked of a fight where you're trying to feed the old lion to the young, hungry guy on the way up, which is kind of a sad end for Anderson Silva. So if like they keep serving him up with fights where he's essentially supposed to be a stepping stone for the other guy, I feel like that's a pretty bleak outlook for for those of us that kind of grew up watching this guy fight. And yet, it does seem like, you know, Anderson Silva is is still the old ball player. Man, like if you come over to his house and ask him if he wants to have a catch, he's going to do it. <laughs> if you if you start offering this guy fights, He's going to take them. That's what I think we've learned about Anderson Silva. So I would hope that cooler heads prevail basically at the UFC offices and we stop offering Anderson Silva Israel Adesanya fights and we start offering him, hey, we just got Chael back from Bellator. What do you think? See, that, fights. that's the thing I was thinking because I was writing about this today about like really what are the kinds of things you can have Anderson Silva do. And yeah, you think maybe Legends Tour kind of idea. Vitor Belfort's sole seniors tour but then the UFC does not keep that many of those guys around. Right, yeah. No, it, that does raise a problem. They find their way out of the promotion. He, there's just not that many guys in his age bracket anymore. And, you know, I saw people throwing around the idea, like, let's do the Nick Diaz thing again. And uh, Nick Diaz made it clear he doesn't want to hurt anybody. He just he wants, wants to party. party. Yeah. Which I know the feeling, Nick. But, yeah, it doesn't seem like you're going to get him on board for that. And you look around at all the other people who are – at a similar point as Anderson Silva, where you think, all right, that would be kind of a fun old timers day, but they're mostly gone. 
the UFC would have to go hire some old timers just to do it. And I don't think that they're really that. I don't think that's a high priority for the UFC right now. That's never really been their game for sure. What if I told you we could finally do the George St. Pierre fight? Would you be interested in that? I mean, I'll tell you who should be interested in that. George St. Pierre. I think that he would be the one sticking point in it. I think he he's the I think everybody would be into it except George St. Pierre. If I'm George St. Pierre, I've never seen a a a version of Anderson Silva that I wanted to fight more than the one that's out there now. No, I agree with you. George St. Pierre might not jump on that, but like you as a fan, if we were like, all right, the next thing we're doing with Anderson Silva is a hundred and eighty five pound pound fight against George St. Pierre, would you be like, Okay, let's do it? Would watch. Yeah. Would watch that one. But all the things we've heard from George St. Pierre and you know his very savvy assessments of what it would take to get him to agree to any certain fight. And he's even mentioned Anderson Silva sp- specifically and him being basically like, I think in the eyes of the fans, they would already expect me to win that fight now just because of where we both are now. Which is true. He's right about that. And he feels like, all right, why do I need to do that then if the only thing that could happen is I don't. I don't do what everybody assumes that I would do. Pro or con another fight with Chris Weidman? Con. Do not want to see that. Even now with Weidman? Like, Weidman has has had his own troubles. He has, but they don't seem like the same kind of troubles. I mean, he's been struggling with some injuries lately. He had some fights where it seems like he should win and then he loses late. But he still seems like close enough to his prime that he could hurt Anderson Silva. You know what it's going to be, right? What's it going to be? Fight in Brazil with Paulo Costa. Oh, God. Right? Why would you say that out loud? You just made it more possible. I'm just saying, given what we've seen so far for the UFC's plans for Anderson Silva, fight in Brazil with Paulo Costa. So basically, you're saying the UFC's outlook on Anderson Silva is, is he dead yet? <laughs> oh, I hope that's not true. I shouldn't would, have said it. I'm would, sorry. I apologize to the Silva family. That would bum me out. I should man. not have said that out loud. What about Israel Adesanya before we move on to round number three here, Ben? He's declared himself the number one contender. Everybody wants a piece. A couple guys I just mentioned, Chris Weidman, Paulo Costa, both calling him out. Uh, you got to think Kelvin Gasolum, in the event of an interim title, would want to be in that with Israel Adesanya. How good do you think this guy is, and where do you put him in the middleweight division right now? You know... It's tough for me to still to say how good I think he is because I think that this was in a lot of ways style-wise an advantageous matchup for him. You know, somebody who's not going to look to take him down and find out what he can do there. I, I still think that there are a lot of bad matchups you could find for him if you wanted to, and the UFC definitely does not. But I think that he he can do a lot of stuff, and he's pretty savvy, I think, as far as just like managing his own career because the stuff you heard him saying after this was I've done a lot of fighting in the last year or so and now I'm gonna wait for something big like I I have some money I can afford to sit back I've done a lot of work and I'm not gonna just get in there just to keep fighting and just just to stay busy at this point which I think is kind of the right move I think he's in a situation where he can cash in for something big whether it's gonna be an actual title fight interim title fight a lot's going to depend on the health status of Bobby Knuckles there, but uh, I don't. Th- if you're Chris Weidman, I understand why you'd be hoping to get your hands on Israel Adesanya. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Yes or no? Anderson Silva against Uriah Hall. Okay, I've heard that one thrown around some. I mean, I guess it's better than Paulo Costa. 
Yes or no, Anderson Silva against the executive David Branch. Wow, I hadn't even thought about that. I'm uh, just looking at the rankings trying to find stuff we could do here. Yeah. I mean, see, then it feels like you're basically doing the thing like you're fighting Derek Brunson over and over again. Well, the other option is maybe Brad Tavares. So there you Ooh. go. Man, if we get into a situation where it's like UFC Fight Night on ESPN Plus, Anderson Silva versus Brad Tavares from, you know, Thatcherville, Oklahoma, that let's just say it's a fall. It's a fall from where he was. You think Hendo picks up the phone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody calls up Hendo and be like, hey, how's it going? We know that you're probably somewhere right now, shirtless and a pair of flip-flops. Dragging a barbecue down the street headed for the beach. What do you say about heading to the gym, getting ready to fight Anderson Silva here in a few weeks? He probably says yes to that. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, we want people to mark their calendars for this because the UFC makes its main card debut on ESPN television this weekend. But not when you might think unless you're Johnny on the spot with the with the calendar here. Cain Velasquez versus Francis Ngannou goes down on Sunday, February 17th. And the main card kicks off at 7 p.m. here in the One True Time Zone. That's 9 p.m. Eastern. And you're going to get yourself into a six-fight main card. It'll be interesting to see how this one goes all the way around. Is it going to be the faster streaming pacing that we love, that we've come to hope for from the first couple of ESPN Plus events? Is it going to be you know, more of a brisk uh, sprint like the UFC on Fox Network shows used to be? Will it be a, uh, a terrible slog like the UFC on Fox Sports 1 often turned out to be our first taste of the UFC on actual ESPN? What are you looking for here? I'm a little bit surprised that it is a six-fight main card, especially on a Sunday night like that. I would have thought that they'd do the Fox model, of trying to do like four-fight main card there. But They are cheating it forward an hour, right? The right, pay- but it's also is- Sunday. So, you know, 9 o'clock on Sunday is not the same thing as 9 o'clock on Saturday night. Right. It just especially for people our age, it isn't. So, yeah, I don't know. I, obviously, you got some good stuff on the prelim portion to – kind of ease people into the main card. You know, you're, you're finishing there with Jimmy Rivera versus Aljamain Sterling on the, as the, your prelim main event. Uh, but everybody's sitting around waiting for Cain Velasquez and Francis and gun. Right. I mean, that's, that's, right. that's what we're in this for. Yeah. So I, I don't know if, if you're looking for ESPN plus or fight pass pacing, you're probably going to be a little disappointed. But I mean, this is—it's TV. They got—they got some ads to run. Everybody got to get there. Everybody's got to do their stuff. Everybody has got to do their stuff. All the advertisers, the general. Hope we get to see a bunch of ads for the general. I know you do on, on ESPN. I know you're really looking forward to those. Um, do you think once we do get around to the main event, are you settling in for a long night there, or are you looking at this one and thinking, "All right, we should be out of here in three minutes." I mean, I feel like this fight only goes one of two ways, right? Like you're either getting a Cain Velasquez embracing of the grind, trademark, registered trademark, that goes into the second or third round and he catches a, a TKO or a submission. 
or we're looking for Cain Velasquez's jaw. 45, 50 seconds into this thing. Francis and Gunn are going to stand there until he can put one in Kane's ear. Yeah. I mean, other than that, I would be surprised to see either like a late knockout or an early knockout on the feet by Kane Velasquez or like a, a late finish by Francis and Gunn. But really like the fact that I feel that way kind of tells you that this fight kind of comes along at an interesting point for both of these guys. Yeah, it really does. We haven't seen Kane since July of 2016, his win over Travis Brown at UFC 200. Obviously, as we have talked about a lot in the past, he was at one point ticketed to be kind of like the assumptive greatest of all time MMA heavyweight. Now you got a guy who's 36 years old. He's been plagued by injuries. When he's healthy and he makes it to the cage and he's not fighting in Mexico City, uh, he seems to look really good. And I feel like if that guy shows up to fight Francis Ngannou, then Francis Ngannou is going to be in some trouble. By the same token, Francis Ngannou had those back-to-back losses to Stipe Miocic and Derek Lewis uh, in 2018, and then closed out the year with that 45-second TKO victory over uh, Miami private investigator Curtis Blades. <laughs> so he's back on the horse a little bit here, but at the same time, like that grinded, grind him out loss to Stipe Miocic, which appears to establish a blueprint for Velasquez here, and then just a, a listless, terrible fight against Derek Lewis, still feel like it's hard to exercise those memories especially just like we've only seen the guy in the cage 45 seconds since then. So I don't know, man, how you lean in here? What do you want to see from Francis Ngannou? What do you want to see from Cain Velasquez? Well, it would be nice to see Francis Ngannou stop as many as one takedowns. <laughs> like if he could do that, then I, the prospects would immediately look up. If he can just sprawl out and stop Cain Velasquez from taking him down at least once. Uh, but it's really hard for me to even know what to expect out of Cain Velasquez at this point. Because one of these times he's got to show up and all the time away and the injuries and just the years have got to take their toll, right? Sometime that has to happen. Yeah, and I don't think you have to be that much slower to get yourself in a world of trouble against Francis Ngannou. Right. I mean, or, you know, you're not going to come out there and just immediately run across the cage and shoot a double leg. You're, you're going to stand there with him for a second or two while you try to get him where you want him. I I don't know. It, it's the thing about like Francis Ngannou is he that everybody gets their imaginations captured by the the one punch knockout guy. You know, it's really easy to to fall in a certain kind of love with that because it just it, it always seems like he's got like a magic touch that at any time can change everything about a fight. And it's you know the guy who takes you down, mauls you, keeps such a high pace that eventually you just break under the pressure of it. Not quite as a sexy uh, a prospect. It's right. not, a, not a thing that people get that excited about. And so it wouldn't surprise me, I guess, if Cain Velasquez goes out there and we're just reminded like, oh yeah, Francis Ngannou, still a relative novice when it comes to some of this stuff. Cain Velasquez way ahead of him and is just going to run right over him. And it also wouldn't surprise me if... Francis Ngannou can just land one punch, but I don't know if that would necessarily make him the better fighter. Yeah, it was just a bit less than 13 months ago that we saw Francis Ngannou lose to Stipe Miocic at UFC 220. God, it feels like so much longer, doesn't it? It's like another lifetime. Yes. And yet, I would, you know, Francis Ngannou is clearly like, uh, uh, has a really high fight IQ, I think. I think he's a smart guy and he's obviously like super athletic. So he's a guy who can add tools to the toolbox relatively quickly. However, I think that the two holes in his game that he would have to sew up to make you feel real confident 
headed into a fight with somebody like Cain Velasquez would be like wrestling, takedown defense, and cardio. And those seem like the most difficult ones to me to essentially become an expert in, in that, that short, short amount of time. I feel like sometimes as MMA fans, we have this tendency to like look at a guy and be like, well, if he just trains real hard yeah. for a little while, like he'll, he can fix these problems and he'll be good to go. I'm not so sure that, you know, if you were a guy who I can say from experience appears to like disdain the wrestling game in the way that Francis Ngannou did, at least before the Stipe Miocic fight, you're not going to become an expert in those areas of the game in that time. You're saying it might take more than six months of sprawl training? Maybe. To go to go back to the old one of the older internet memes. Yeah. Well, I think the thing, like you're right that it seems like to play right into the strengths of somebody like Cain Velasquez because it's not just that he is a good wrestler with good cardio. It's that he brings such a, a high pace to these fights that most heavyweights haven't seen before and aren't used to. And it's like more so even than a guy like Stipe Miocic who kept like taking him down and controlling Francis Ngannou and got him tired that way. But Cain Velasquez has that way where, you know, you're in these grappling exchanges with him. He gets a little bit out in front of you and then a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then pretty soon you're lost and you just you can't keep up with him. And I think mentally it really wears people down. Like you just you, you can't stay with the guy and he's always throwing something different at you and he's just overwhelming you. Yeah. And what we saw from Francis Ngannou in that Miocic fight, frankly, was like, it was like a snowball kind of like once he got in a situation in the fight where he was uncomfortable, once he got a little bit tired, once he started to realize like, okay, this isn't going the way I thought it would. Uh, he was still dangerous. We saw late in the fight, him uncorking ponderous uh, punches in the direction of Steve Miocic. But it, it was also kind of like you could see this, the kind of like Johnny Hendricks voice take over where he was like, Oh man. Yeah. Like eventually he realized this just isn't the thing that I wanted to happen. Yeah. Well, I guess if Francis Ngannou goes out there and manages to actually stop a Cain Velasquez takedown or two and then actually manages to land that big punch, will you be ready to be like, all right, Francis Ngannou is a new man. He has turned a corner. He's ready to go back after it and ready to be the heavyweight champion. I mean, if that's if it's the kind of fight where Cain Velasquez does everything he can possibly do to get Francis Ngannou down over the course of like eight minutes and can't do it, and then he gets knocked out, maybe, yeah. like. But that would seem fucking amazing. Yes, it? it would be unbelievable. <laughs> kind of impossible. But the thing is, like, we we I can air all of these concerns about the game of Francis Ngannou, and yet I feel like if Cain Velasquez has lost a step, this one is is wide open, kind of like you. You, I don't think like a, a, a diminished version of Cain Velasquez can show up and win this thing, right? Or if you know, just throwing out hypotheticals, if maybe Cain Velasquez was feeling not quite a hundred percent, but also didn't feel like he could stand to pull out with another injury, sure, which and is, goes out there anyway and thinks, well, I can just take this guy down. I can, I can still do it, which is totally possible. Totally possible. Totally, totally possible. Francis Ngannou going off at a, as a plus 160 underdog. Cain Velasquez really, that's it? about a minus 185 favorite. So That's closer than I would have thought. I would have thought Cain Velasquez would be a much more sizable favorite than that. Well, yeah, I mean, much of it might be that uh, we just haven't seen the guy for a long time. So I don't know, man. I'm excited for this one, though. It's, it's like I love a fight where I don't know what's going to happen. 
Obviously, yeah. I love a fight where you I can feel talk like yourself into kind of any scenario. Yeah, I love like not having a real good handle on what's going to happen. I love that this fight is going to be on ESPN television. Uh, I love that it's two really likable heavyweights who are both at a point in their career when they could really use a meaningful victory. And I think this will be a meaningful victory for either one of these guys. It's a great main event. I got I got almost nothing negative to say about it. Well, you know, and it's not a bad main card just in general when you look at it. You know who's on this. Your guy's on this. Brian Barberina. Oh, yeah. The pirate. Yeah. He's going to board your boat just to start it That's on right. fire. He's going to sw- come swinging in on a rope with a knife in his teeth, landing right on the deck of your ship. How you like that? I, I, I love it. I love it. Also on this, uh, Andre Feely versus Miles Jury. Miles Jury going to go out there and make a, make a bunch of faces like the bad guy in a teen karate movie. Uh, and then your co-main event... James Vick versus Paul Felder. Now that's going to be fun. Something bad is going to happen to someone in that. Yep. All right, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, I don't know if you heard that Daniel Cormier was on the MMA Hour today, and he was talking about how he's been dealing with back injuries and stuff and not going to make that 40 birthday retirement deadline after all from the looks of things. Now, when he's talking about... uh, how it's how it is to deal with these little lingering issues and injuries at his age. Uh, here's a quote where he talks about, especially with the back stuff. You think you're better, but then you're not. And when you're not better, you're really not better. You feel fine, but when it goes out, you're on the floor crawling. It's a weird thing. I'm just saying, the more Daniel Cormier talks about his life as UFC heavyweight champion at the age of... 39, the more I just fucking relate so hard to it because yeah. he's, he's just talking about my life right now. This, all, all the, the young, the hip young listeners of the co-main event podcast, this is exactly how it is. This yeah. is exactly what happens. You get to a certain age and you don't even need a reason to be hurt anymore. You just, you, you get out of bed wrong, you hurt something, and then it's like that for the next six weeks. He was just also, saying. he was just saying, yeah, he was also talking about Anderson Silva. Saying that, like, uh, the fact that people were celebrating Anderson Silva going out there and looking competent against Israel Adesanya makes Daniel Cormier be like, I don't want to be around that long. I don't want to be the guy that is going out there and everyone's like, he looked better than we thought he would. Yeah. High five. Yeah, he didn't die. Ben, you know who's doing it right? Who? This guy, Johnny Walker. Okay. One of the problems, as we have addressed time and time again with the UFC's current schedule is that a guy goes out and does something amazing, and then he just kind of disappears yep. back into the like roly-poly, ongoing, never-ceasing UFC schedule. Well, my guy Johnny Walker is out here saying he wants to jump in and replace Ovin St. Prue against Misha Sirkunov at UFC 235, to which I'm just saying, give it to me right now. Give it to me, it's mine. I want Johnny Walker fighting Misha Sirkunov at UFC 235. The same card, if I'm not mistaken, where John Jones is supposed to be out there fighting Anthony Smith. That's right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Johnny Walker, give it to me. Give it to me, Johnny Walker. <laughs> it got weird at the end. It got really weird. Well, you can see I'm excited. Yeah, I, I can see that, yes. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Ben, we got lots of cool stuff happening on the Patreon. Oh, yeah, we do. First live chat last week went off without a hitch. Yeah. Got our second, killer. second live chat coming up on Wednesday. That's for all levels of the Patreon. So if you only got a dollar to spare per month, Jump on board for the live chat, yeah, man. Come on in. Water's fine. Ask us questions and we will answer them. We got the second episode of Road Agents coming out also on Wednesday. 
road agents. We got, uh, I would assume, a power hour on Friday that we're going to have to talk about scheduling because I'm going to be going out of town. God damn it. So we'll uh, we'll figure that out. Get your as, shit together. As it goes on. Uh, but yeah, lots of cool stuff happening at the Patreon. Go over to patreon.com slash co-main event. Check out the, uh, the different tiers, the different uh, tiers of support that you can jump in on. Everybody gets gets to do their stuff. You know what I'm really looking forward to this uh, second episode of Road Agents? What's that? This time on Deadwood, a stranger comes to town. Okay. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff happening. Yeah. Catch us up with that. As usual, we'll be back next Monday to catch you up on all the stuff that happens at this UFC debut on ESPN television. Catch you up on all the stuff that happens on these two Bellator events. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Johnny Walker, how sad you are. I saw the look in your eyes. I feel like you're sitting to I just feel like it's a perfect opportunity before we forget about the guy with his foot kick spinning back to his knockout. Give me something else. Give him Misha Sirkin on the UFC 235. How are you going to keep this? Like it's it's going to get him.